Psalm 8 verse 5 tells us that God made man a little lower than the angels. Comedian Will Rogers added, and he's been getting a little lower ever since. Well, that's the theme of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. The Garden of Eden was the scene of the first Adam bomb. Hey, Adam and Eve bombed big time. They sinned, and the fallout poisoned the entire human race. The contamination was immediately visible in the form of a birth defect. Adam and Eve's kids were born as self-centered as their parents had become. They see it first in the self-righteousness and in the pride and in the jealousy of their oldest son. Cain murders his brother Abel. And there, from there, the Adams family, no, no offense, no likeness there, but well, a lot of likeness. The Adams family goes from bad to worse. Humans begin to convert with demons. They are given to rebellion and deviance and perversion. In fact, it becomes so bad that God floods out humanity and starts afresh. Noah's family exits the ark and at God's command begins to multiply and fill the earth. But here's what happens. Rather than scatter out, the people huddle up. They disobey God. And at the Tower of Babel, led by a tyrant named Nimrod, all the tribes come together to defy the Lord. It's amazing, really. After every sinful episode in the human drama, rather than write us off, rather than wash his hands of us, God responds with a covenant. He reaches out in love with new terms for a relationship. You see, God's goal is to redeem man, to make him new and better, not just return him to his state of innocence. This is why God allowed sin. God prefers a man who's fallen and can't get up, then gets lifted up to a man who's never fallen and thinks he could get up if he did. Even after the flood, God came to Noah with a covenant. God had judged man's evil, but God had then hung up his bow in the clouds. His war bow, the rainbow, was the sign of God's mercies. He would never again judge the earth with water. But Nimrod refused to trust God. You see, a fallen world is full of the fearful and the frightful. And Nimrod played on man's fears. You know, the question we all face is, can we trust God in the midst of this scary world, in a fallen world? Or will we fend for ourselves or trust other things? Nimrod convinced the people to look out for themselves and to trust him. They built a waterproof tower in the desert. Can you imagine? The only explanation is they couldn't trust the promise of the rainbow. Nimrod made God out to be the bad guy. He waged war against God. Nimrod's tower doubled as an observatory. He consulted the stars. He coaxed man into worshiping creation rather than the creator. You see, Genesis 1 through 11 just races through history. The first 11 chapters cover a period of time over 2,000 years. Whereas the last 39 chapters of Genesis span only 245 years. At the end of chapter 11, Genesis puts on the brakes. God crashes Nimrod's party. He alters the monotongue of man and he confuses the languages. 
And God forces men to separate and scatter as he had commanded them in the first place. After the Tower of Babel, God hangs out a caution flag. He slows down the pace. And he begins to work with one man and one specific family. In Genesis 1 through 11, God works with mankind as a whole, but with little success. I mean, the whole thing ends up in a worldwide revolt. Satan chooses a man named Nimrod, a place named Babel, and a means called fear. God has to bust up the mutiny. But how does God respond to such sin? (laughs) Hey, he always comes with a covenant. God never gives up on us. But this time, God changes his strategy. For beginning in chapter 12, he will no longer work with mankind corporately. Instead, he picks one family through which he will install his covenants and redeem mankind. Beginning in chapter 12, God chooses a man named Abram, a place called Canaan, and a means called faith. And the rest of your Bible is the story of God's plan of salvation as he works it out through the Hebrews, the family of Abraham. Which brings us to our text, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram. Now there are all kinds of fanciful Jewish tales that try to paint Abraham as godly from birth. One story has him expressing his faith at 10 days old. Hey, trust me, a 10-day-old baby doesn't know how to express his faith. All he knows how to express is that his diaper's wet and his stomach's hungry. The truth is, Abraham started out a Babylonian idol worshiper. That is, until the day that God spoke to him. Suddenly, in that moment, Abraham had to choose. Would he believe that God is God, or would he trust in his own wisdom? Abraham trusted God. And from this time onward, Abram believed in God. Not always perfectly, mind you. But time after time, He went against the grain of his doubting, skeptical culture, and he believed in God's promises. Genesis 11, verse 28, says that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was one of the wealthiest and most sophisticated cities of the ancient world. Ur was a land of luxury. They say that bathtubs were first used in Ur. Kind of hot tub capital of the world, this city called Ur. And while living in Ur... Abram married a her. He got a her in Ur. A gal named Sarai. And her name means contentious. Which proves to me that marriages in those days must have been arranged. For what man in his right mind is going to marry a woman named Miss Contentious? But the Lord spoke to Abram. Get out of your country from your family And from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God comes to Abram and he gives him this instruction. Abram then comes home from work and announces to his wife, Baby, pack the house. We're going to move. And Sarah gets so excited. He got a raise. Uptown Ur, here we come. We'll live in a swim and tennis. She's already thinking about the furniture she's going to buy. But then she asked the fateful question, 
Where are we moving, honey? Oh, and she wasn't ready for the answer. God told me to move. He just didn't tell me where. Hey, recall her name. Contentious. Trust me, a heated discussion followed Abraham's announcement. Abram's initial foray into faith was more like a stumble rather than a step of faith. God said, get out of your father's house. Instead, he let his father and his nephew Lot tag along. He was also told to go to a land that God would show him. And on his first attempt, he didn't make it. He moved 600 miles west of Ur, but he stopped 400 miles short of Canaan. In other words, Abram followed God halfway. And you know, this happens to us sometimes. You know, we make a move toward God, but we pull up short of all he's asking. We hold on to elements of our old life rather than than really shaking free. We get one foot with the Lord, but we keep one foot in the world. Rather than relocate to a new land, all we do is move upstream. Donald Barnhouse used to describe it. They have enough Christianity to be miserable in a nightclub, but not enough to be happy in a prayer meeting. You know, a partial follower of Jesus is a miserable person. They've got too much of the world to enjoy God, and they've got too much of God to enjoy the world. Well, Abraham's compromise landed him in a place called Haran, which means parched. And you know, when we compromise our commitment with Jesus, we too end up parched, spiritually dry. Abram didn't fully follow God until his father Terah died. Terah must have been holding him back. I wonder, what is the Terah in your life that's holding you back? What needs to die in your life so that you can become a fully devoted follower of Jesus? You know, often real faith begins with a funeral. Well, when Terah died, Abram moved to the land God had promised him. But God also makes another promise in His covenant to Abram. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Now the name Abram means father. But this was an embarrassment at first. I mean, Abram's 75 years old and he's childless. Every time Abram met someone new, he was asked about his kids. I mean, his name invited the question. An old father had to say he didn't have any. But here God promises Abram descendants. I mean, you can't sire a nation without an offspring. And God is promising Abram that he'll have a child. Then God makes him a third promise. And I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Ultimately, the blessing that God promises to bring through Abram is our salvation. Jesus is born of Abram's lineage. That's why the New Testament writers go to such effort to trace his heritage back to Abraham. All of the blessings that we have in Christ, in a sense, come to us through Abram. You know, it's interesting that Nimrod had said, let us make a name for ourselves. But he went about it the wrong way. He rebelled against God. He struck out on his own. Abram, on the other hand, chose to live by faith. He followed God even into the unknown. And God promised in turn to make his name great. Well, at first glance, you might miss the strategic importance of this covenant. It's really disarmingly simple. But Genesis chapters 12 verses 1 and 2 is the most strategic two verses in your Bible. Here is the Abrahamic covenant. 
It's the most important deal God ever struck with mankind. From time to eternity, history will turn on this covenant. Notice again the threefold covenant that God makes with Abram's progeny. He promises him a chunk of land, a great nation, and an ultimate blessing. Here's the condensed version. Just three words. You can remember it. Land, nation, blessing. I've made it even easier for you. Here's a great way to remember it. Sod, seed, salvation. Can you say it with me? Ready? Sod, seed, salvation. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but I just want to stress to you the significance of this covenant. It can't be overestimated. The Abrahamic covenant is the bedrock of the Bible. From here, from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22, all we're going to do is just fill in the details of this threefold promise. Here's where you can connect the dots. You can put your Bible together. The rest of the Bible is all about the land and the nation that lives there and the blessing that comes through that nation's lineage. You grasp these three promises and you'll understand your Bible. Now notice what else God promises to Abram and his offspring in verse 3. God takes an oath. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now not only does the scripture bear this out, but so does history. Did you know that nations have prospered and crumbled based on their treatment of Abram's family, the Jewish people. Egypt declined in power after the enslavement of the Hebrews. After Babylon sacked Jerusalem, they were conquered by Persia. Greek culture declined when Antiochus destroyed the temple and ran roughshod over Israel. Rome persecuted the apostles and therefore were targeted by the barbarians. The Jewish inquisitions were the end of Spain's greatness. Hitler's attempts to exterminate the Jews sealed Germany's defeat. Even Great Britain fell in prominence after they turned their back on Israel. Certainly one of the reasons for the sudden fall of the Soviet Union was its cruel treatment of Jews and its opposition to the state of Israel. Even the medieval church sunk into the dark ages when they assumed it their duty to punish the Jews for their rejection of Jesus. And I, and I got to tell you, I have no doubt that one of the reasons God continues to shed His grace on America is because we've remained staunch allies of Israel. And if we ever pull that support, mark it down, judgment will be close behind. This past Wednesday, Kathy was out of town and so... I decided to put her car in the shop for some repairs. Well, at noon, the mechanic called me and he told me that it was ready. But I didn't have anybody to really call to take me to the shop. I didn't want to bug the people up here at the church. And so I decided to just run up to the shop. I try to exercise most days anyway, so, I mean, why not? And so I ran from my house in Loganville to the garage in Snellville. Almost seven miles. What in the world was I thinking? <laughs> See what happens to a man when his wife is away for a week? The guy goes nuts, man. He stops thinking straight. For 
some reason, those seven miles just didn't seem like a big deal sitting on my couch in Loganville. It just didn't seem like a big issue. But when I started pounding the pavement and dodging tractor trailers, swerving in the wind and climbing those hills, it got longer, man. Those seven miles got very real and very tangible. And this was the realization God wanted to awaken in Abram in chapter 13. Notice in verse 14, the Lord told him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Farther than the eye could see, this was the land that God promised to Abram. And notice the duration of the promise. He says, all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants for how long? Forever. Hey, forever is a pretty long lease. Forever. You know what that means today for us, for this world, even for the future? It doesn't matter what the U.S. or the U.N. or the Muslim nations or the world community have to say about the borders of Israel. The land that God gave to Abram belongs to the Jews, not the Arabs. This is what God has said in His Word. Notice verse 16. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Later in chapter 15, God is going to take Abram out under a night sky. This is before the days of parking lot lights and ambient light from the city. And God is going to tell Abram to look up into the sky. And he's going to say, your descendants will be as the stars in the sky, innumerable. This is amazing. A childless 75-year-old geezer named Abram will end up with a family as innumerable as the dust particles on earth and the celestial bodies in heaven. Then I love what God tells Abram next, verse 17. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Abram, get out now, man, and pound the ground. Pace the pavement. Experience firsthand my blessing. Now, if you told me this past Wednesday that the stretch of road from Highway 78 from Loganville to Snellville, is really just a spiritual land. It's just a heavenly reality. I would say to you that you're nuts. If you were to try to convince me that walking in the land is really just a spiritual metaphor, oh, it just means we're growing spiritually in the Lord. I would show you the blister on my foot, and then I would tell you you're nuts. And I'm sure that this is how God and Abram react whenever people try to spiritualize these promises. The land promise of the Abrahamic covenant is a literal land. God gave to the Jews, to Abram, a chunk of dirt. He gave them a clod of sod. It was sod from God. And this is why the Bible unfolds in Canaan, in a specific place. The Bible doesn't unfold in Beijing or in Paris or in Stone Mountain, but in Israel, for that's the land that God gave to Abram. The Abrahamic covenant gives real land to real people. 
The heirs of the covenant are not just the spiritual children of Abraham. They're the real bloodline, DNA-tested descendants of Abraham. God has literal promises on the books that have to do with literal land and with literal people. In fact, God gave to Abram literal borders. In Genesis 15, verse 18, God tells Abram, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. Of course, today's hot topic in Israeli-Palestinian negotiations are the Israeli settlements on the West Bank. I mean, does Israel own the West Bank of the Jordan River, the land that the Bible refers to as Judea and Samaria? Well, I hate to tell you this, but God not only says Israel owns the West Bank of the Jordan River, Israel owns the West Bank of the River Euphrates. That not only includes all of the disputed territories like the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan, it also includes a lion's share of Egypt and the Sinai and Lebanon and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Syria and Iraq and Kuwait. Now I know there's some people in Egypt that are in denial of this. But this is God's word. This land belongs to Israel. Today, Israel consists of 8,000 square miles, about the size of New Jersey. But one day, and it may well be when Jesus returns to fulfill all God's promises, Israel will possess 300,000 square miles of territory. As God promises in Genesis 13, verse 15, this is the land that God gave to Abram's heirs forever. But who was Abram's heir? Well, two episodes from his life clear up any confusion here as to Abraham's heir. In Genesis 15, you can turn there now. It's been a decade since God first promised Abram descendants. He's now 85 years old and he's starting to worry, man. I mean, there's an expiration date on this childbearing thing. He's not going to be fertile forever. Abram suggests to God that he make his servant, Eleazar, his heir apparent. But that's not God's plan. In chapter 15, verse 4, we're told, The word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall be your heir. Uh, this one shall not be your heir, meaning Eleazar, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. He's going to come from your own body, Abraham. I mean, Abram's been on Social Security now for 20 years. He's getting old. He's no spring chicken for sure. Yet God is going to solve his problem, not with adoption or with in vitro or with surrogate parenthood. Even before the days of Viagra, the old boy Abraham is going to sire a son from his own body. He's going to do it. And notice Genesis 15, verse 6. Here is a key verse in your Bible. When Abraham believes in this promise, we're told, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Righteousness, a right standing with God, goodness. It wasn't something Abraham worked to achieve. No, he believed in God's promise and God gave it to him. He made him righteous. He instantly put him in a right standing with God because of his faith. 
This is an often quoted verse in the New Testament. It appears four times in Romans 4 verse 3, 4 verse 22, in Galatians 3 verse 6, and in James 2 verse 23. This is the verse that Paul uses to prove that we obtain and maintain a right standing with God. Not because of what we do or don't do, but because of our faith in God's promise. All God's blessings are received by faith and faith alone. I love what Mark Twain once quipped. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. God pours out His blessing, not on folks who think they deserve it, but on those who trust in His grace. And what happens next is one of the most marvelous and monumental events in all the Scripture. Abraham believes God's promise, but his faith isn't perfect, remember. And so he asks God for some corroboration. In essence, he wants God's signature on this covenant. And God signs all His covenants with blood. Thus, God responds in verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now what in the world's going on here? Is God launching a petting zoo? Well, then He brought all these to Him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now this is how the ancients signed their contracts. They literally cut a deal. They cut a covenant. They would slaughter a series of animals. They would cut them in cross sections from head to toe. And then they would arrange the animal halves into a quarter. The more important the covenant, the more animals it took. <laughs> you think... The closing on a house is a hassle. Imagine entering into this kind of an agreement. After the animals were sacrificed, the two parties would, who were entering the agreement, they would meet in the middle of the animal parts. And they would walk arm in arm between the animal halves as a commitment to their part in the covenant. In essence, they were walking between sections of the same animals. Therefore, they were becoming one with each other. Well, Abram has gotten out his knife. Now he's, he's gone to work. He's been slicing beef all day. And finally, he sits down to wait on God. Abram is expecting God to literally walk with him through these animal halves. He waited all day into the evening. In fact, he wore himself out, shooing away the hungry vultures all day, waiting on God to appear. So much so that verse 12 tells us, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. In other words, Abram had a nightmare. And in this nightmare, God reveals the future of his descendants. Their 400 years in bondage. Their eventual exodus from Egypt. How God will use them to judge the evil of the Amorites when they return to the land. But what happens next astonishes me every time I read it. Notice verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. you got to get the picture. According to custom, a covenant was signed when both parties joined arms 
and walked together through the animal carcasses, down that quarter blood. In essence, they were saying that if they didn't fulfill their end of the deal, they'd both be dead meat. Abram was expecting God to literally appear and join arms with him, and the two of them would walk together down the blood corridor. But that's not what happened. God appeared while Abram was asleep. God came in the form of a burning torch and a smoking censer, smoking fire. You remember God led the children of Israel through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a fire by night, smoking fire. And here's what happens. God comes while Abram's asleep and God walks through the animal parts without Abram. He walks through the blood corridor all by himself. Now, Abram told about it later. He, we, we read about it now. Perhaps he woke up just in time to see God walking through the carcasses. He awoke, he looked on, and he believed. And God credited it to him for righteousness. You see, in doing it this way, God was establishing a unilateral covenant. This was totally one-sided. This was not man's part and God's part. This was all God. God will take sole responsibility to complete his promises to Abram. All God expects out of Abram is to rest and put his faith in God. And here's the lesson for you and I. Salvation is not, it never has been, a tag team effort. It's not up to you to meet God halfway. The blessing of God is not received by God doing half the work and you doing the other half of the work. No, no. In our covenant of salvation, God does all the work. He takes sole responsibility for earning God's blessing. All we have to do is wake up and believe. Isn't that beautiful? That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now you would have hoped the signing of this covenant might have been enough to steady Abram's wobbly faith, but not so. Recall, God uses Abram as an example of faith, but his example isn't perfect faith. There's no such thing. And in chapter 16, Abram and Sarah, they wobble together. Now she's at least 75 at the time. And she's been taking these mega doses of fertility drugs for a lot of years now, but it just ain't happening. And so she concocts a plan. She has this maid named Hagar. Good looking guy, looks healthy, looks like she'd be a good, good mother. Maybe Hagar can bear a child in Sarai's place. You know, a case of surrogate motherhood. Well, Abram, he goes along with the scheme, and the result is a boy, a boy named Ishmael. Father Abram finally has a few pictures on his iPhone now. He has a son named Ishmael who God promises to multiply. Sadly, though, the birth of Ishmael teaches Abram a painful lesson. For almost immediately, this plan backfires. It blows up in his face. He learns firsthand the agonizing truth that a sinful plan can't produce godly results. We're told in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, when Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. Boy, old contentious starts acting the part. 
she blames Abram for what was her idea. Guys, when that happens to you, at least take consolation that you're not the first. It happened to Abram. The baby is barely born when war erupts. Hagar gets haughty. Sarah becomes jealous. Poor Abram gets caught between two feuding females, and that's not a good place to be. It's interesting. The Middle East today is still victimized by this ancient sibling rivalry. Ishmael and Isaac are still at each other's throats. The hostilities between Jew and Arab are the result of Abram's lack of faith. Always remember, try to do God's will your way and you'll usually make a mess of the situation. We need to trust God to do His work, His way, in His time. Now on the heels of Abram's failure, God prepares him for the miracle birth. The Abrahamic covenant is so significant that God attaches to it a symbol. In chapter 17, God instructs Abram to be circumcised. Oh boy, imagine a man 99 years old having a surgical procedure on his privy member. That's some rough stuff. It reminds me of the two trees that grow over in Israel that have been named after the Jewish rite of circumcision. There's the juniper tree. And there's also the eucalyptus tree. Just thought I'd throw that out for your enjoyment. The Abrahamic covenant was to be passed down reproductively. The land, nation, and blessing was intended for Abram's heirs. It's poetic then that God places the symbol of their covenant on the fountain of reproduction. Now in Genesis 17, the two waiting parents, they receive new names. Abram is 99 years old and freshly circumcised. Hey, have no doubt, this is a man of faith. That alone qualifies him. And because of his faith, God gives him a new name, Abraham, which means father of many nations. The guy's got one child now, and he goes from father to big daddy. And God changes Sarah's name as well, from contentious to Sarah or princess. And when God reaffirms his promise to give Sarah a son, we're told Abraham, having received this new name, being this great man of faith, we're told what he does. He fell on his face and laughed. And I wonder if any of us wouldn't have done the same. I mean, a 100-year-old man, a 90-year-old woman expecting a child. Abraham's supposed to become a dad after he's been on Social Security for 45 years. I mean, Sarah can pay for the delivery with Medicare. It can't possibly be. And Abraham belly laughed. Actually, when God mentions him having a son, Abraham shouts, Oh, that Ishmael might live forever or live before you. Hagar's boy was Abraham's son from his own body. And so he thought, well, maybe Ishmael is the the answer to the promise. But God's reply to Ishmael and to this suggestion has profound theological and political ramifications 
even to this day. In chapter 17, verse 19, don't miss it. God corrects Big Daddy. He says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. And with his descendants forever. Hey, this is the underlying squabble in the Arab-Jewish standoff today. Muhammad, he was a shepherd slash merchant who had become disillusioned with wife in Mecca. And so he wandered into a cave one day in the mountains outside the city. There he had a series of visions that denied the Trinity, the deity of Christ. He claimed that the only way to please Allah was to surrender to Him. This is what he came out from his, with his visions. Muhammad was a pretend wannabe prophet who needed some religious cooperation for his visions. And so he claimed a connection to Abraham through his son Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. In fact, in the Quran, Muhammad does a rewrite. The Bible, in at least 16 passages, refers to the God of the land and the God of this covenant as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Quran, which was written 2,000 years later, it refers to Allah as the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. Muhammad pulled that out of thin air. He had no uh, authority to, to do that. It was a blasphemy of God's word. Muhammad exalted Ishmael, father of the Arabs, over Isaac, father of the Jews. The Quran teaches that Ishmael was the son with the miraculous birth. That Ishmael was offered by Abraham on the mountaintop. According to Muhammad, Abram and Ishmael built the Muslim temple in Mecca. You see, the Quran steals the covenant from Isaac and bestows it on Ishmael. Muhammad claimed that Ishmael was the keeper of the true faith and had passed it down to him. While Isaac strayed, and his descendants, the Jews, lost God's inheritance. The Bible teaches that the blessing which comes through Abraham is Jesus, while Islam asserts that that same blessing points to Muhammad. This is blasphemy of biblical truth. Read through Genesis and the covenant that God makes with Abraham in chapters 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22, gets repeated to Abraham's son Isaac in chapter 26 and then to his grandson Jacob in chapters 28 and 35. The God of the covenant is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Certainly not everything the state of Israel does is right and the Arabs aren't always wrong. In fact, God promised to bless and multiply both Jews and Arabs. But make no mistake about it. The covenant that God made with Abraham, the land and the nation and the blessing belongs to the descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. Abraham might have laughed, but today it's no laughing matter. And not only did Abraham laugh at God's promise, so did God's princess. In Genesis 18, angelic messengers show up at Abraham's tent to reaffirm God's promise of a son. This time Sarah is in the background. She's eavesdropping in on the conversation. 
And in verse 12, we're told that when she hears the news, she laughed within herself. That's when the angel of the Lord answered, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course the answer is no. The proof is in Genesis 21 verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time. And who was it? Isaac. Now, did you hear about the cool video games Abraham had running on his laptop? Had these cool video games. When Isaac came up and he was checking it out, and he got this real concerned look over his, over his face. And he said, Dad, he said, you know, I, I don't think your computer, you've you got an old computer, I don't think it has enough memory to run all these video games. And that's when Abraham replied, Son, God will provide the ram. Which brings us to the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. Genesis chapter 22. In verse 2, God tells Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac. Wait a minute, Ishmael's still back in the tent. But God says, Isaac is your only son. God didn't even recognize Ishmael. Isaac alone was Abraham's heir. God tells him to take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Imagine raising a knife with the intent of slitting the throat of one of your son, your only son. Imagine that. On top of that, Isaac was heir to God's promise. Abraham had waited 25 years for his birth. Now he's supposed to sacrifice him back to God? Well, according to Hebrews 11 verse 19, Abraham had concluded, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham believed that God would resurrect his son Isaac. Hebrews 11 tells us that this was a test for Abraham, but this was also a picture or a figure for us. Father Abraham, he travels to Moriah to offer his only son Isaac God the Father will make the same trip 2,000 years later to offer His only Son, Jesus. Moriah was one of the hills of Jerusalem. In Abraham's day, there was a settlement about halfway up the mountain. This means that Abraham probably climbed above that settlement to the top of the hill to make his sacrifice, a place that was later named Calvary, the exact spot where God would offer up His Son, Jesus as a sacrifice for us. Notice too a few details. Abram took wood for the sacrifice and laid it on Isaac. Jesus carried his cross up the hill. Two men accompanied Abraham when he went to offer Isaac. There were two thieves on the crosses beside Jesus. On top of Moriah, God stopped Abraham from laying the knife to his son's throat. His willingness passed the test. And immediately a voice spoke from heaven. It pointed to a ram stuck over in the thicket. God provided the sacrifice that day, as He would do 2,000 years later when He offered up His only Son. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the sinless sacrifice that blots out all our sin. And then the voice that spoke on top of Moriah talked again to Abraham. 
Genesis 22 verse 18 says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is so important. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now you've heard of some famous verses. John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Did you know there's another 3.16? Galatians 3.16. Quotes Genesis 22. And there Paul makes a big deal out of this word seed. In fact, Paul is emphatic. He says it's seed singular, not seeds plural. And he uses this verse in Genesis to prove that the covenant God made with Abraham ultimately pointed to one seed, one descendant, and his name is Jesus, not just all the Jews. This is why the Abrahamic covenant is so vital to us. It not only outlines God's future dealings on earth, but it clarifies the root and source of our salvation. When you connect the dots, they all point to Jesus. You know, the life of Abraham, it is really an epic story. Big Daddy Abraham, he starts out an idol-worshiping Babylonian, and he ends up the father of true saving faith. It's really amazing. Abraham holds a fascinating distinction in Scripture. Three times he's called the friend of God. He never held a property deed on anything God promised, but he believed. Rather, he roamed in his tent his whole life long, looking to God himself, believing in the promise. Hebrews says, He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know, Abram was given so much on earth since he needed so little. His eyes were on a bigger prize. You know, when you walk by faith, you realize you're not home till you get to heaven. Hey, may we follow in his footsteps. Here's what we're learning through these covenants. All God's covenants are initiated by grace. They're signed by blood, but they're entered into by faith. Do you have faith? Do you believe God's promise in your life? Let's all walk in the footsteps of faith.